Bibles, please. Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. If your neighbor doesn't have a Bible, if you'd be kind enough to share your Bible with them, that'd be a blessing. Genesis chapter 49. Thank you for being here at Sunday night service. Sunday night service is not the same as Sunday morning service. It's better. Amen. And we just we just get to just hang out a little bit more and just get into the word. And that's a blessing here. I want to encourage you to invite your friends to and people that you know or people that you meet on so many to come to our, our Sunday morning series of Nothing But the Truth. And we're just trying to elevate the Lord Jesus Christ through those services and helping people just to uh, just be excited about what God, what God can do in their lives. And we'll do the same here on this, this series on Family Portrait. Now, the, the picture taken tonight is not just if, you, if you know, you're the only one of your family that's here. I want you just to... Get your picture taken. If nothing else, my wife and I will take a picture of you. Amen? And that'll be, that'll be a family together there. But let's just take some pictures that our photographers are ready after the service. And we just want to get some pictures in there just that you can kind of earmark that as that's part of a, uh, just the kicking off this new series we're going to do on the sons of Jacob. And we pray it'll be a blessing to everyone. Genesis 49, verse 1. Genesis 49, verse 1. And Jacob called unto his sons and he said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together, and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, Thou shalt not excel. Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, thou defilest thou it, he went up to my couch. Our Father, tonight we start this series, and I just, I'm just going to follow your leading. As we look at these twelve sons of Jacob, who went on from a posterity standpoint to represent twelve tribes of Israel, Twelve great people groups. And Lord, as we study these boys and these men, these actually grown men, we're going to see something from the heart of their father as he makes a prophecy concerning them about the latter days, about what he anticipated happening about them. As what, you, Lord, you laid on his heart to tell his sons as a father to his son. And tonight as we look at Reuben, I pray that you'll help us to be enlightened I pray this evening that you sanctify us through thy truth. Thy word is truth. I pray that you'll help me to speak tonight as it would be the oracles of God. I pray this evening that, God, your word would be magnified in our hearts and will give you glory. We pray that you help us to have a better understanding of the word of God this evening. Order our steps in your word. Let not any iniquity have dominion over us. Lord, help us to see wonderful things from thy law tonight. And we'll be careful to give you the glory and the praise. And then tonight, should there be, and as there always is, Someone here this evening who's never made a profession of faith in your son, Jesus Christ. They never called upon Christ to be their savior. We ask this evening, before we even go to the Lord's table, that they would make this thing right and recognize the importance of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be saved tonight. Give understanding, clarity from the word of God. Feed our souls, we pray tonight. Help, I pray this evening, that you'd be the great shepherd of the sheep this evening. And Lord, through my lips and through my life, I pray that you'd shepherd your people and that the, uh, the flock of God would be fed, uh, Lord, w- without any reservation. And their souls would be filled and rich. And help us tonight that we'd lie down beside the green pastures. And Lord, we pray tonight that you help us to be beside the still waters and that the Spirit of God would speak to us this evening. We pray for all these things of you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
new series entitled The Family Portrait. We're looking at the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob is basically on his deathbed and making a prophetic announcement concerning his sons. And just by way of perspective, I want to go back to Genesis chapter 42 that we might capture just kind of what was in Jacob's heart as these days were approaching. In Genesis 42, as you'll read over here in verse 35, we see something of Jacob, just Jacob's concern as a father in terms of how his sons had, had, uh, had affected him over the years. And Jacob was a very, very old man at this time. In fact, he was so old when he saw Pharaoh in a, in a later chapter. Pharaoh asked him, how old are you, sir? And you notice in Genesis 42, verse 35, it says this, and this is at the time when the sons made their first journey into, back into, back in, down into Egypt to get some food, and the, the famine had hit the land and, it, and incorporated, it touched everybody's life. And it says here in Genesis 42, verse 35, when it came to pass as they emptied their sacks, that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when both they and their father saw the bundles of money, notice they were afraid. And notice Jacob's heart. He's just, he's just bearing his soul to his sons. And he says, And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not. Simeon is not. And you will take Benjamin away. Notice his statement here. All these things are against me. Now this is not the same Jacob that we saw in our previous chapter, Genesis 32, when God met with him and he wrestled with the angel of God. And as the angel of God wrestled with him, he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And it was that moment of time that Jacob was disabled by the, by the Lord. And the angel of God, of course, being our, our Lord Jesus Christ and in his pre-incarnate form. And he touched him by the thigh and disabled him. And uh, this, at that moment of time, his name was changed to Israel. And God told him, as a prince, thou hast power with, with God and you have power with man. This is not the same Jacob we see at this moment in time. This is a Jacob who's discouraged. This is a Jacob who felt like, like the, that, his, that his world had caved in. And notice his thought at that moment in time. He said, all these things are against me. And Reuben spoke up to his father. Notice this of all things. And Reuben spake to his father saying, slay my two sons. If I bring him not to thee, deliver him into my hand. I will bring him to thee again. And now Reuben, as we'll see, Reuben is making a statement. He's trying to redeem himself from something we'll see later on in this message, from something very, very heinous that he did against his father. And in verse 38, the Bible says, Jacob said this to Reuben, my son shall not go down with you. He's basically saying, Reuben, I can't trust you. He's basically saying, Reuben, that there's something wrong with you that you just have not gotten a hold of here. He says, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. And if mischief be fallen by the way in which you shall go, then you shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. So with that being in mind, let's go back to Genesis 49. And we're going to see here the study about the 12 sons of Jacob. And the very first one being the son by the name of Reuben. Now, Jacob, as he's lying there, he's going to tell each of his sons in no uncertain terms what was going to lie ahead for them. Some of them, there were some good things that he foretold. And for many of them, there were some things he was just very brutally frank with them about that would happen in their lives. Reuben, you might want to mark this down. Reuben is the first of his sons. We find that in verse 3 here. He's the first of his sons. He was born to Leah. Leah is his mother. Leah made this pronouncement about Reuben when he was born in Genesis 29:32. If you'll notice this. Leah conceived and she bare a son and she called his name Reuben for she said, Surely the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. She bore him in affliction. She thought having this son would 
changed how Jacob looked at her. And so his name was, the name given to him was the name Reuben, or he that was born. I want you to see three things about, about Reuben tonight that must stand out in our hearts and are vital lessons for our Christian faith. First of all, notice in verse 3, we see Reuben and his privilege. The Bible says in verse 3, Reuben, as Jacob is speaking to him, Thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. He says four things about his son. He calls, he calls Reuben his might. He calls him the beginning of his strength. He calls him the excellency of dignity. And he calls him the excellency of power. All of these descriptions speak about Reuben as being the very firstborn of all the sons, the very firstborn child. Now, all of you understand this. The firstborn child is the one that perhaps uh, parents have probably the greatest hope in. They pour all their energy in their firstborn. It seems like the firstborn has more responsibilities laid upon him or her than the other children. And of course, in most cultures, the firstborn is very important because there are certain things passed on to him in terms of responsibilities. And Reuben had three privileges at birth that are somewhat described here in verse 3. Notice this, first of all, the first privilege given to him was that of the priesthood of the family. Now, if anything happened to Jacob, the priesthood of the family would descend upon the firstborn or Reuben. Priesthood meant that he would be the spiritual successor to his father. Priesthood meant that he was the family representative to God should his father not be present. So in other words, Jacob held the awesome responsibility of representing his family before God. If something happened to him, that was immediately uh, passed down to, to Reuben or the firstborn that he would be the priest of the family. As the priest of the family, he would represent the family at the altar. He would be the one that would lead them in prayer. There was something to be said about being the firstborn. Priesthood implied that he was raised to serve the Lord. There was a concentration from the father upon that son that you're i'm going to emphasize with him that he as the firstborn would would serve god he was the might the beginning of his strength priesthood implied that he would make sacrifices at the family altar and would offer prayers on behalf of the family so the first privilege he had was that of a priesthood the second one was that of the birthright notice he speaks about dignity here in this verse he calls him the excellency of dignity now by saying that we see something else that happens later on. If you would, the family scepter, the family, the family um, royalty, if I can call that, was passed upon the firstborn. Now, as we'll see later on, uh, this man Reuben, Reuben forfeited that, and the scepter would be passed to Judah, who was number four. He was the first, the fourth son. And Judah, of course, we know that the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ would come through the tribe of Judah. But notice here that the royal dignity would be passed to him. He would be highly esteemed as the firstborn. He was the one that would be revered of all the children because he was the firstborn of his son. That's why when Jacob chose these words he was very careful he describes his son as being his might the beginning of his strength the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power well the first thing given to him was that of priesthood the second thing given to him was that of the birthright notice the third one which was very important here was that as being head of the tribes look again Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. Now, as head of the tribes, something very unique was given to the firstborn. Those who've been around the Bible know this. The uniqueness of being the firstborn is at the time of the inheritances that would be passed unto the sons, the eldest son would get a double portion from the father. Now, all of the family members knew that. That would be ingrained in them, that the oldest son would get a double portion of the inheritance. That's when we think about the story about the prodigal son 
who is the youngest, in, in Luke, Luke chapter 15, as he goes to his father and he tells his father he wants his inheritance, what was somewhat foolish about that is that he, there were only two sons. He wound up getting one-third of the inheritance because two-thirds would go to the older son. The older son, his eldest brother, basically got a double portion. And so being the oldest son, he would get a double portion from the father. Now, as we consider the privileges of Reuben, we must consider the following. We must hold in high esteem the privileges of grace that God has bestowed upon us. We must pause every now and then and think about the fact that the privileges of grace that have been passed upon you and I, of serving the Lord, of honoring Christ, of that of being a son of Jesus Christ here. We must never forget that God has high expectations upon each of us as children of God that we are to live for the glory of God. Whatever your circumstance may be, wherever you may be at in your Christian life, my prayer that this evening is that we would all leave this place tonight with the decision that, you know, God has blessed me with wonderful spiritual privileges and it's my desire to live for God and uphold the name of Jesus Christ and well represent Him as a son of God. And so tonight we see Reuben and his privileges. But now let's, 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 let's go down a little bit further and notice verse 4. Let's consider Reuben and his profile. In one verse, he describes a lot of things about this son. In one verse, he tells us some things, some character traits about the son that are not very desirable, and yet there's some things we can learn from. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, thou defilest, uh, then defilest thou it, he went up to my couch. Now, notice this phrase here that he uses three words to describe him. He describes his son as unstable as water. Now, I like, I like when I get canned every now and then, especially when we go on vacation, I like to kind of just look at the beach water. I like to be up at about 5, 5.30 in the morning as the sun is starting to, to get up there. And I like just to watch this, as the water as it's coming in and going out. And if you've ever watched ocean water, especially from beach line, maybe at Ocean Beach there, over there in San Francisco, you notice that the water is not the same. There are times when the water is placid and seemingly calm, and there's other times when the water is very rough. And there's never a wave that's ever the same. Every wave of water is different there. As we watch the water as it goes out and as it goes in, it's never the same. There are times when it's calm, it's predictable, and it appears safe. And there are other times when the ocean water can be very fluid and moves about according to the tides. There are high tides, there are low tides. Notice again, he describes Reuben as this. He says, unstable is water. Now, you might want to mark in your margin there, because I'm going to come back to this. The unstable of water goes even beyond that. He's describing boiling water in this context here. He's describing water that's been set on a stove in a pot, and the heat is turned up very high, and the water is boiling. Boiling water, as it boils, it eventually will evaporate and leaves nothing behind. He describes his son as being unstable. He describes him as someone that doesn't have, he's not very, he's unpredictable in his ways. He is describing him as someone that is ir, ir, uh, irresolute and vacillating, as someone unpredictable as far as when it comes to change, as someone who's irresponsible. The Bible calls someone who's unstable a double-minded Christian, a double-minded person. Notice again, he says, Jacob, thou art unstable as water. Instability is our inability to be certain to be confident, to be decisive, and to be predictable. It's our inability to be any of those. We're not predictable any moment of time. We vacillate. We change our mind. We're not very firm in our decisions. We decide one day I'm going to be in church, another day I'm not going to be in church. We decide one day God is on the throne, we decide another day God is not on the throne. We decide one day we're going to pray, we decide the other day we're not going to pray. We just, we're just indecisive a lot of times when it comes to faith, when it comes to giving, when it comes to doing things. It might be that some today... 
As we've been talking and encouraging the church and will continue to encourage the church to come with a with an offering for the 1K offering for the debt reduction of our, of our building. Perhaps son came even to the offering this morning and says, should I give or should I not give? Should I give or should I not give? It may have even been today that we struggle in our heart. Should I go to church or should I not go to church? I mean, we're filled with all these different things pulling at us. And a person who's very unstable in their ways, they're feeling pulled by something in a different direction and will typically follow whatever pulls them the hardest. And although Reuben was the eldest, and presumed to be the most experienced of Jacob's son, sadly he's described as a man who was unstable as water, that you could not tell which way he was going to go, you could not tell what he would decide, you could not tell which way he would go, you just would have to have as a default that he would not decide for the best thing there. He was wavering, he was divided in interest, and he was doubtful. And a person who is little in faith is considered someone who is unstable as water. Now there's some things we want to see that are characteristics of someone who is unstable or double-minded. I want you to write these down and listen very carefully. Number one, an unstable or double-minded person is ungrounded in all his ways. He's ungrounded in all his ways. Now, in understanding that, let's, let's consider what the Bible has to say about grounding. Grounding is the development of a firm foundation about what you believe and how you should live the Christian faith. It's important that every Christian is grounded in the Christian faith. Can I hear amen about that? It's important that we're grounded. The Bible describes grounding this way in 2 Kings 19 and in, and in uh, Isaiah 37. It is taking root downwards, bearing fruit upwards. Say that with me. It's taking root downwards. Say it with me. Taking root downwards, bearing fruit upwards. Let's say it again. Taking root downwards, bearing fruit upwards. That's grounding. He's getting your roots in very deep. Jesus, as he describes the parable of the sower, he describes seed that fell on, on, on shallow soil. And the, and, and the seed, as it started to take root in the soil, it did not go very deep because the soil was very hard. And so we have to consider as, this matter of grounding, the heart of our, the soil of our heart. What kind of soil is our heart? What does God want to do with our heart? And just like at the end of every, of every harvest season, a farmer looks at his field and he considers what he's going to have to do for the next harvest season. And what they typically do is they break up the fallow ground. They take the clods of dirt and they break it up so that it's suitable for, for, for the seed to fall onto. And here's what I'm going to say this morning, this evening. God wants every one of us to get our, the soil of our heart suitable for the, for the casting of the seed of God's Word. The soil of our heart must be good soil so that it can produce 25, 50, and 100-fold fruit. Now let's look at some things about grounding. Go with me to Acts chapter 14, if you would. And let's consider some things the Apostle Paul has to say about the grounding of our, of our hearts and the grounding of our faith here. Acts chapter 14, which you notice verses 21 to 23. Now Paul believed in this, and we read this. This is Paul in his first missionary tour. And he's going back to certain churches that he, that he ministered to and churches got established and people had gotten saved and they were growing in the Lord and they had, they were very, they were very, uh, very excited about their faith. But Paul knew that emotionalism wouldn't land, would last very long. And we notice in, in Acts chapter 14, notice verses 21 to 23. It says, and when they preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. Notice this in verse 22, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must through much tribulation enter to the kingdom of God. Now sometimes we read that verse, we take for granted everything that's there in verse 22. But verse 22 is a mouthful as we consider the grounding of our faith. Notice verse 22. The very first thing Paul did, he spent some time there with these believers and the Bible says he confirmed the souls of the disciples. Did you notice that? He's not focusing on head knowledge. He's focusing on the soul of the believer. A lot of times as we teach the word of God, we can get so caught up 
with the knowledge of the text, we forget about the spirituality of the text. We forget about the fact that the text is meant to change our lives. The text is meant to go deep into our soul and to work into our hearts. And confirming that, here's what he was saying. He wanted to strengthen their soul. He wanted to strengthen their faith. He wanted to help them be firm in their their faith and their belief about God. He wanted them not to have not, not to have any doubts about who God is and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to earth and became a man, but just like us, yet without sin. He wanted to know that Jesus Christ was altogether God. He wanted to know the Holy Spirit of God, what His ministry was. And so confirming them meant to strengthen them. It meant getting their faith really, really tight with the Lord there. And then secondly, He exhorted them to continue in the faith. He was saying here in this grounding process, listen, you're going to have difficult times and, and things are going to go, you'll have good times, you'll have bad times, but you need to continue in the faith. You need to be firm in the Lord. Later on, Paul would say the same thing in 2 Timothy 3.14. He said, continue thou in the things which I was learned. And then he tells in verse 22 that we through much uh, tribulation must enter to the kingdom of God. We doesn't just stop there. The grounding, of course, is getting the word of God. And the grounding is learning how to pray. And the grounding is learning how to study God's word. And the grounding is learning not just to come to church and be a spoon-fed Christian. I'm saying this morning, this evening, a lot of times we come to church and we just expect the word of God to be open and we're going to hear a message and we're going to be spoon-fed the word of God. But we go through the week and we haven't taken time to let God speak to us all week long. And God's desire for you and I is that as a grounded believer that we get grounded in the Word of God, we discover truths on our own. And we discover things that God does in our life there. And notice the end result of that. When you have a grounded church and grounded disciples and grounded people, guess what happens here? It's not difficult for people to say, well, the preacher said we need to give. Let's just give. The preacher said we need to have a prayer meeting. Let's just have a prayer meeting. The preacher said, let's go win souls. And we just go win souls. And the preacher said, hey, let's do something for this widow over here. And we go do something for the widow over there. Or the preacher says, hey, let's do something something for missions and we do something for missions. It's not difficult for us to do those things because notice as Paul is dealing with these these believers, he's telling them this, I'm not going to be here for a long time. I'm not going to be here for a long time and you've got to get grounded in the word. I'm going to go on and I'm going to start more churches. And so notice verse 23, after they got them grounded, guess what they did there? They had ordained them elders or pastors in every church and had prayed with fasting, commended them to the Lord that in whom they believed. He said, listen, the end result is not just to teach you how to read the word and to get you grounded, but to give you spiritual leadership. And from that spiritual leadership, you have direction and vision and you're increasing in faith. You're growing in the Lord. Notice Colossians chapter two, would you please? Paul went on further to say something further about grounding. Notice Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. He's talking to believers that had been, uh, their, 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 their thoughts and their hearts, their souls have been beguiled by false teachers. And these false teachers that came in, those who studied the book of Colossians know this. These false teachers, we call them, we call them, uh, there was a, the false doctrine of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism said, well, Jesus Christ, we believe he was a man, but he couldn't be God because we believe that flesh is evil. And if, if flesh is evil, there's no way Jesus Christ would be God. And so they were attacking the deity of Jesus Christ. And Paul very strongly in Colossians chapter 1 establishes for them that Jesus Christ is altogether God. God and he proclaims Jesus Christ as being creator. He proclaims Jesus Christ as being creator God and commander God and completely God. And he says all those things and says in all things he's to have preeminence. And he talks about the fact that you're complete in Jesus Christ. And those are wonderful doctrines for us to grasp hold of. But then we get to Colossians chapter 2. And this is what he tells these believers who were saved. In verse 6 he says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. He said the Christian life didn't stop after you got saved. The Christian life is fluid. It keeps on going. Amen? Then he said, verse 7, Root it. Root it. Plants that don't thrive, they're not rooted. Trees that don't grow, they're not rooted. 
You want a vegetable garden that's flourishing? It's got to be rooted. No root, no fruit. Now, the question we have to ask tonight, how deep are your roots? Because if you're, if you're vacillating, I love the church today, but tomorrow I don't love the church, your roots aren't very deep. Or if you say today, well, Jesus, I love Jesus, he's great, but you get a trial and tomorrow he says, I don't love Jesus because he put this trial in my life, your roots are not very deep. Now, we can talk about trusting God, but we've got to all talk about the trials God sends too. By the way, trials are God's gift in our lives. Until we come to that realization, we're always going to be this emotional curve. Listen, God doesn't want you and I to be on this emotional roller coaster where we're emotional Christians and we get all excited about this and that. And we get excited about the meals and we get excited about the, about, about the festivities, things like that. Hey, listen, you ought to just be at the place of your Christian life. The greatest thing you get excited about is that you're saved and Jesus Christ is your Savior. Amen. He says, if you therefore receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. And by the way, that's the starting point. Is he Lord? Is he in control? And he says, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. Hey, do you know your doctrines of the faith? Do you know why I believe that we believe that God is God? And do you know why we believe that Jesus Christ is God? Do you understand? Do you know what the Bible says? And do you know what you believe about the Holy Spirit? And what do you understand about the church? And what do you understand about the doctrine of salvation? And what do you understand about prophecy? And what do you understand about, about the Lord's table as we go to that? I mean, there's a lot of doctrines of Scripture. And, and praise God, we have a church that through multiple services and different times that the Word of God's being taught. And every now and then we're going to cross over each other a little bit here, a little bit there. But listen... Those things that we teach and those things that are advocated are to help you and I to get our roots deeper into the soil and to get our roots deeper in Jesus Christ so that we can say in verse 7, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Hey, there's something to be said about someone who's very rooted. They've got a thankful heart. Their emotionalism is not based upon the external. Their emotionalism is based upon the relationship they have up there. And Paul went on in verse 8, he says, Beware lest any man spoil you or ruin you through philosophy, vain deceit. Don't, don't fall in the trap of saying, as you read the Bible, I don't understand this. What's the commentary said about it? I'll tell you what the commentary said about it. He doesn't say as much as the Word of God says about itself. Amen? We had a believer that was, used to come to our church, a good man, but he, he, he guess he came to this background where basically everything he read, he said, well, I gotta check the commentary, what, what goes on. And I had to frankly tell him one day, I said, listen, listen sir, if all you can do is check the commentary, you're never gonna, never gonna enjoy the blessing of having the Holy Spirit of God be your teacher who comes alongside of you and teaches you the Word of God. He said in verse 9, he said, For in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. It's important that believers are grounded. It's important that spiritual leaders are grounded. Not grounded because you have a title. Your Sunday school teacher, thank God you have the privilege to teach the blessed holy word of God. Amen. But as a spiritual leader, as you stand up there and you try to exert any kind of influence on people, you must understand something. As a leader, you must be grounded in every facet of your spiritual life. The moment you open your mouth and I open my mouth and we start saying things to people, we need to take in mind, take into account that people somehow trust what we say. 
And if people trust what we say and they're trusting what we're telling them is the word of God, it's very important that they are not misled. And it's very important that we're not manipulating their conscience and manipulating their thoughts and not manipulating their emotions to get them to be followers of us. Because our goal is not to have people as followers of us. Our goal is to have them be followers of Jesus Christ. Spiritual leaders, there's a lot of grounding. Grounding of our character. Grounding of our consecration. Paul told Timothy, who was a young pastor, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Hey, Timothy, I know that there are older men in the congregation that are despising your youth. What I meant by that, they were a little bit skeptical about him as a youth, and he was trying to exert his leadership by saying, Well, I'm the pastor, you need to follow me. And he was telling him, If you're just telling people you're the pastor, the truth of the matter is you're not their pastor. The truth of the matter is they can't follow you because what you really need to do is example spiritual leadership through your example is what he said there. He says, he said, little man, no despise your youth, but be thou an example believer. And I'm going to tell you tonight, I was just talking to one of our, one of our men about this, to have a good, wholesome time of conversation, encouragement, exhortation. It's not enough that your Sunday school teacher teaches the Word of God. It's not enough that you're sponsoring our club fellowship and teach the Word of God. It's not enough that you're asked to get up there and give a devotion on so many, something like that. You must model everything that you're preaching. Be thou an example of the believer in purity. Be thou an example of the believer in spirit. Be thou an example of the believer in word. Hey, listen, we must model whatever it is we're preaching. And we can't be like the man we talked about the other night, Jacob Jehoiakim. We say, well, that part of the word of God, I'm not really sure. I'm really, I'm really on, on board with that. And so we get like Jehoiakim. We take a penknife and we mutilate the word of God and we cut that part out because we say, well, I'm just not going to go there. Hey, if we're living like that, we're not letting God's word have full and complete control over our lives. So notice we go back here to Reuben for a minute. Thou art unstable as water. Being ungrounded means you don't have a firm foundation. Shaky ground. You're ungrounded, you're lacking vital facts. You're ungrounded, you're lacking a stable relationship. Our singles come and they say, Pastor, I'm interested in pursuing a relationship with this Christian lady, this Christian man, or whatever it may be. And they're kind of just been talking a little bit. One of the first things I always like to ask them is, that how stable do you think the person is? Stability is important to God. Stability is important in spiritual leadership. Stability is important in our marriages. An ungrounded person is indecisive about God, about the faith he has, about his family, about his relationship. And please, don't, don't, don't take this tonight. Well, pastor's coming down and saying, I'm, I'm not saying that. I think it's a, it's a struggle. Every Christian, as we grow, we're going through all that, okay? This is in the Word of God. This is God, God wants us to know this. Being ungrounded means... Unstable as water is the same. We'll say one thing and then do another. They're not grounded in the wisdom of God's word. Their decisions that are based on feelings or hearsay, not the facts of the word of God. Faith believes who God is. 
He can be easily swayed in a wrong direction, a wrong doctrine. He's not grounded in truth and veracity. He has a hard time keeping his word. As someone who mainly cannot be trusted in many things, he tends to backslide and disappoint people around him on a constant basis. I just say tonight, as we look at this man by the name of Reuben, if we trace his life through Genesis, we see a man who's very ungrounded in his faith. Now, my question tonight is, how grounded are you in your faith this evening? How grounded are you in prayer? How grounded are you in your emotionalism? Do you get all emotional hot very quickly? Do you have an anger issue? I would tell you, most of us who have an anger problem, it's probably because we're ungrounded in that area. We haven't let God have lordship in that area. Elijah stood before the people of Israel. Just a few years before, Asa was king. God is good. God is great. Righteous king. How many years after the king's change and Ahab comes to the throne, he marries a woman by the name of Jezebel. Ahab was a very unstable, ungrounded man. He's a profligate man. And Jezebel influenced to put Baal all over the place. God had to get Elijah ready for a major confrontation. It took God three years to get him ready. By the way, before you jump in anything, it's a good thing to follow the Lord's leading, to say, God, would you prepare me for whatever you want me to do? Amen? He took three years to prepare Elijah for a confrontation on Mount Carmel. He took 40 years to get Joshua ready to take over the reins from, from, from Moses. Hey, listen, God, God is not in a hurry is what I'm saying to you tonight. Amen? They got on Mount Carmel, and here's Elijah, the soul, this this soul guy, all by himself there. And you count up the total. There's 800 these prophets of Baal, these false prophets, these pagan believers, these 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 men who are represented on the payroll of Jezebel. And God had worked in his soul for three years. God was burning something as hard as a preacher of God, as the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. God was burning his soul, a message that needed to be preached, but it wasn't ready to be preached in year one. It had to be preached at the end of year three. He was burning his heart a message that the people needed to hear because the people were vacillating back and forth. And they came, they came up there, the people, he called all of Israel up to that mountain because they wanted to know in their mind they were filled with emotionalism, they're ungrounded. And they came up to that mountain thinking, hey God, I wonder what God's going to do with this, this old country hit preacher here by the name of Elijah. I wonder what this guy is going to really do up here. And they thought, well, well, you know, he shows that he's got the power of God on his life. Maybe we need to see what's going on there. But they were indecisive. On one end, they wanted to worship the Baal gods and they wanted to worship Ashtoreth and they wanted to keep on worshiping those licentious gods and they wanted their lustful behavior to exhibit itself but on the other hand they're out here and they wanted to follow Elijah and they, they thought well you know he represents a voice we haven't heard for a long time and they were thinking in their mind it's been a long time since we've heard preaching it's been a long time since we heard somebody stand up and stand for God it's been a long time since we heard a man stand up and say I'm a man of God and I'm going to stand for God and it doesn't matter what society does I'm going to live for God and preach the word of God and so they came up there and he looked at them and he said you guys can't make up your mind so he got up there with a thundering voice as a prophet of God. He said, how long halt ye between two opinions? That's where we're at as Christians. We're not ungrounded. How long do we halt between two opinions? Now, you need to decide something tonight before I move on. You need to decide that Jesus Christ is Lord or He's not Lord. You decide that you're in the church all the way or you're not in the church all the way. You decide that you're all in it for Jesus or you're not all in it for Jesus. You're going to decide today you're going to be an obedient Christian or not going to be obedient. I'm just saying today, we, this man, this man Reuben, he was unstable as water because he was ungrounded. Number two, he was unstable as water, which you notice is because he was ungodly. 
But you notice back this passage here, in verse, Genesis 49, verse 4. Are you there with me? <clears throat> verse 4 bluntly tells us he was ungodly. Now, a very simple definition of ungodly is there is no, no, there is no indication God was in his life. The word for unstable as water has the idea of boiling water. The word unstable here literally means this, reckless, wanton, filled with unbridled license. Jacob was burning hot in verse 4. He finally, after many years, rebuked his son right here for something he did that's recorded in Genesis 35, 22. I don't think I need to define it. I think it makes you know what it's saying here. He said, A sailor's water thou shalt not excel because thou wentest up to thy father's bed. Then they followed so it. He went up to my couch. He was godless. He was lacking scruples. He was the mind. He was the ecstasy of dignity. He was the, the strength. He was the firstborn. He showed all the signs in those beginning years that, that he was a promising son that would well reflect his father and well represent his father and well represent the tribe and well represent the family there. And then along the side there, after they had all these turmoils and after Rachel had died and after, after, after Deborah had died, we're in Genesis 35 and they're making their way and he moved his family to another area and they camped in this place. I think it's called Edar is where they camped. And while he was there, Jacob had his back turned. Jacob was else and his son Reuben had had these lustful desires and he went inside his father's tent and he did something that was that he should have never done he did something that later on his father found out about it his father found out about this thing and, and Jacob the Bible says Jacob knew now Jacob's on his deathbed he says son I've got some things I've got to tell you and you need to hear this right now he says your sin has found you out a long time ago and he said son you are ungodly in all your ways Peter describes this which look at second Peter 2 14 Describes these false teachers who prey upon God's people. And he describes why they are successful in preying upon them. Having eyes full of adultery, that's pretty strong. And that cannot cease from sin, that's pretty strong. I haven't preached from Second Peter in a long time. Beguiling unstable souls. A heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. His instability led to uncontrolled desires and lusts. Fathers, listen to me this, this evening. Mothers, listen to me tonight. While your children are at home, while they're under 18, work on their appetites. Work on their appetites. Single men and women, work on your appetites, your desires, your longings, your cravings. Bring yourself to the place, and please let me understand this tonight. Accountability, reports for accountability are worthless. We don't need reports, we need results. That's true accountability. 
until you're able to say, I've got this, I've got these. And by the way, every, every single person tonight and every married person tonight, you have the same challenges Reuben had. We all do. His instability led to uncontrolled desires and lusts. His instability led to bad spiritual judgment calls. His instability reflected irreverence towards his father. That, by the way, they didn't have churches then. There was no church in the Old Testament. Okay, if you've read that somewhere on the internet, there's no church on the internet. By the way, you shouldn't begin your theological truth from the internet. You didn't hear a lot of amens on that one. They didn't have churches there. In the family unit, the father was the priest of the family. He was the spiritual leader. Irreverence to his father was mocking God. Read Proverbs. Being godly means that he didn't choose God. He was halting between two opinions. Go with me to James chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Would you notice this? In James chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, it gives us some further enlightenment that James gives us about the unstable person. And he, he ties all this instability to, to prayer, doubting, and faith. Prayer, doubting, and faith. And he tells us in cha- James chapter 1, verse 5, about the, about the importance of asking God, uh, asking God for wisdom. And, uh, of course, we like to take that and talk about the fact we need to ask God for wisdom. And we should ask God for wisdom, by the way. And tomorrow morning when you start the day, just ask God for wisdom for the day. Amen? But specifically and contextually, he's talking about asking God for wisdom when you're going through a trial. That's what he's saying there. Ask God, Lord, what is it you, what is you trying to teach me through this? What is, what is the enlightenment you're trying to give me? What is you trying to do here? And so he says in verse six, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth, notice this, is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. There's never one wave that's ever the same. They're always different. Waves are unstable. Try to stand on a wave. You won't be successful, amen? Unless you have a surfboard. Even then you're not successful, amen? But let me ask in faith, nothing waver. He that wavers like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. And let, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything the Lord. Now here's what he's saying in the context. He's saying when we come to God for prayer, and we're asking God to, to do something for us, when we are indecisive and we're doubtful and our prayer is very, 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 very superficial and not really, doesn't sound like we really mean business with God. He says here in verse seven, verse seven, for let that man ask in faith, because he says, if you think you're going to receive the answer to prayer, he's, he's saying you're not going to get an answer to prayer. Hey, listen, one of the reasons why we don't have answers to our prayers is because our praying is just like that. We're asking with indecisive. We don't really know whether God's going to do it. And by the way, a lot of us, you know what we do? We pray for something. Here's what we do. We we, we, before we pray, we've got a plan A, we've got a plan B. Can I say this tonight? If you're going to ask God for something, there is no plan B. That's a lot of faith. That's a lot of faith. There's no plan B. That's what he's saying here. There's no plan B. That's real praying. It's all or nothing. Either God is true or God is not true. Either God is powerful or God is dead. By the way, he's not dead. Amen. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Oh, God, I just pray that you heal this person. You do that. And that's all you pray. Listen, what you ought to do is get on your face before God and clear off your counter. Spend half a day on your face before God. And let God break you before he even begins to hear you. Amen. So is that in the Bible? Yes, yeah, in the Bible. You just haven't read your Bible. Then notice verse 8. 
He's talking about a wavering faith, indecisive man, a doubtful individual. And he says this is very, very convicting. A double-minded man is unstable in what? Wow. Wow. All his ways. Do you understand the ramifications of that? Instability results in us being unstable in our relationships. We're unstable in our decision-making. We're unstable when it comes to dependability and faithfulness. We're unstable in our praying. We're unstable in our love for God. We're very emotional. We're emotionally driven. He says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He's unstable when it comes to the exercise of faith. He's unstable when it comes to those difficult places of the Christian life when the Word of God says, speaks very clearly about our separation from the flesh and separation from the world, and we have a difficult time with that. And by the way, the Bible says this, pure religion and undefiled before God is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Pure religion. And so we see Reuben here is unstable as water. He's ungrounded in his ways. He's ungodly in his ways. Would you notice one other thing tonight? He's only ungrounded. He's only ungodly. But you notice he's ungainful in all his ways. Would you notice what Jacob said about him? Reuben thought my firstborn, my might, the ecstasy of my strength, the ecstasy of dignity, the ecstasy of power, unstable as water, thou shalt not. Would you like that kind of prophecy? You've been a loser, you're going to stay a loser, is what he's saying there. You're a failure. You're not going to make it. He's saying what God has been telling us in James chapter 1 and all through Scripture. When we're indecisive, we're always hanging in the balance. We can't decide we're going to have true faith in God. We haven't decided to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. We haven't decided to take up our cross and follow Him. And by the way, if you're going to take up the cross, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, why don't we decide to get rid of this 21st century, easygoing kind of Christianity and pick up the cross of Jesus Christ and have some weight on our shoulders and be and stop complaining about the burden and stop complaining about the problems and just realize, hey, Jesus, thank you that you trust me with the cross. I just want to keep on going a little bit further with that cross for you. Amen. He said, you're not going to excel. Did you consider some things that would happen to the tribe of Judah after that? Write this down because I don't think this is in your notes. The tribe of Judah never rose to prominence. Notice 1 Chronicles chapter 5. In verse 1, he repeats the fact that, that God, God took Reuben... And took the scepter from him and gave it to Judah. It's repeated again. God wanted to make sure that successive generations and future people of God would read and understand that Reuben failed. Because he decided to be unstable in his life. And the Bible says in 1 Chronicles 5.26, And the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pol, king of Assyria, and the spirit of Tigath-Pilsenar, king of Assyria. And he carried them away, even the Reubenites... And the Gadites, and the Taft tribe of Manasseh, by the way, where were those two and a half tribes? Eastern side of the Jordan. Remember that? Eastern side. God says, okay, I'll let you have your inheritance over there. You help us get over there. But listen, they built that altar of Ed, and they caused some confusion by then. That got all cleared up. Thank God it got cleared up. But they went on their happy way and they just were, they were a little bit disconnected from the rest of the tribes. Let me say it tonight. God will let you, God will let you make your decision, but you watch. If you're a little bit too disconnected, watch what happens with your faith and watch what happens to your loyalty. 
Yeah. Go with me to Judges chapter 5, which you notice what, what Deborah had to say about him, about Reuben. Judges chapter 5, verse 15. And this is Deborah's song. In this song, the Jews did this kind of thing. They would, after great victory, they would rehearse everything that happened there. They put it into song, and, and that was just how they celebrated an event. But they were very candid as their descriptions of what went down there. And if you go back to chapter 4, we read that the tribe, the chapter 5, verse 10, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, we see that Barak called the Zeb- Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh, and they went up with him 10,000 men. He could count on Naphtali and, and, and Zebulon to be with him and a couple of the other tribes. But notice what Deborah, Deborah, she stood in the back room, what she had to say about Reuben. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, even Issachar and also Barak. He was sent on foot into the valley. And that's just kind of a great devotional thought there that Issachar went with Deborah and with Barak and they went into the valley. They said, you know, we're going to put our lives on the line. We're going to go in the valley because we know that these, these, these Gentile kings, that they're, they're, they're going to try to defeat us. And we're going to, we'll stand with you, Deborah. We'll stand with you, Barak. But this is what she had to say about Reuben. For the divisions of Reuben, there were great thoughts of the heart. And she was saying, saying there this he said Reuben was indecisive they could decide to fight or to stay they could decide to get in get to get in all the way or to stay out he said for the great division heart what he's what he's really saying there Reuben was filled with turmoil at a time they needed to go to battle at a time they needed to be counted on at a time they needed to get all in they decided in their heart the bible says there were great searchings of the heart they decided you know what we're not really decided what we're going to do we're just going to stay on the backside. hey listen tonight we've got a 1k offering don't be indecisive about it get in all the way with your preacher and say let's get it done amen that's what Deborah had to say about Reuben. Did you know there were no judges, no prophets or heroes from the tribe of Reuben? Do you know in number 16, verse 1, Dathan and Abiram, Abiram, who led the revolt against Moses? Remember that? Say amen if you remember that. You know where they were from? They were Reubenites. His father said this, unstable is water, thou shalt not excel. He's completely unprofitable. He has no root. There's no fruit. He's not faithful in his responsibilities. He's not forthright in his speech and conversation. He's not friendly in his disposition. God can't bless an unstable life. God cannot bless an unstable life. He said, thou shalt not excel. He was ungrounded. He was ungodly. He was ungainful. And so tonight we see the profile of this man. But as we close it, I want you to see one more thing. We see his privileges. We see his profile. But I want to end tonight with the prescription. Amen? Because when I'm sick, I want to know there's some kind of medicine that can help me. Amen? Even though I don't like medicine. Amen? There's a prescription. There's a remedy. Moses had this to say in Deuteronomy 33.6 many years later. Moses is the lawgiver. 
he got up and he said, let Reuben live and not die. You know what he's saying there? Reuben, there's hope for you. Reuben, you could, you could turn this around. He said, let Reuben live and not die and let not his men be few. He said, hey, hey, don't, don't, don't fade off here. Hey, there's still hope. You're one of the 12 sons. You're one of the major tribes. Let Reuben live and not die. And I'm saying tonight, hey, don't, don't take this message and say, hey, it's discouraging because, you know, God kind of put his fingers on me. Hey, God always puts his fingers on something in our lives because God wants us to know he loves us and he doesn't want us to say like we are. Amen. By the way, we should be mature enough that when we're corrected to say thank you for seeing that and help me to be a better Christian. Amen. He said, let out his men be few. Hey, Moses had hope for him. And so as we close, and I want to give you the prescription. First of all, go with me to James 4.8. Would you go there, please? There's two things I'm going to give you. We're done. We're going to go to the Lord's table. We're doing good time. You're saying to Reuben, God, my grace is sufficient for you, Reuben. There's hope when we fall in this trap of being unstable as water and double-minded in our ways. We have time away from God. We're not spending time in His presence where He changes. We have to give ourselves over to say, God, what's going on here? In James 4, 8, here's what he says. Draw an eye to God. He'll draw an eye to you. Now, you, you need to come to God. That's what he's saying there. Well, God, won't you come to me? No, you need to come to God. You need to come, and you need to get close to God. Some of us are too shy to get close to people. I understand. Maybe people burned you and all those kind of things. Hey, but listen, God, God never burned you. Get close to God. Amen? Amen. Jesus never burned anybody. You can get close to Him. Draw an eye to God, and He'll draw an eye to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Now, when you understand everything about Reuben, now you understand why He says purify your hearts. He's ungodly in all His ways. First thing we need to do for the prescription, double-mindedness must be confessed as a sin. We're going to the Lord's table in a minute. It must be confessed as a sin. Now, why is he used the word double-minded? Because the word double-minded in its literal translation can mean this, a person with two souls. You want to be comfortable here in this world, but you also want to be comfortable with God. Now, the Christian life God wants us to have is not two souls. We only have one soul. Single eye, single mind, single life. We need to stop living as if we have two souls and live as we have one soul. Because as you read the rest of now we understand what's going on here in chapter 4. Because in chapter 4, he's talking about believers who are fighting with each other. They're having contentions and strife. And then he boils it down the fact that their prayer lives were not working. Their prayer lives were having problems. And then he brings it down to verse 4. He says something very strong about, about their connection. He's saying, here's why you're double soul Because you've got one foot in the world and one foot with God. And you can't make a decision because on one end, you want to take the promotion. Even though the promotion takes you out of church, it takes you away from God. On the other hand, you know that it's the right thing to live for God. You want to go with God. But you, but the, but the love of money is the root of all evil. And so the love of money pulls you in this direction. And the love of, and the love of favor and wanting someone's approval. Hey, listen tonight. We need to get over this insecurity that we have to always look for people's approval. The only one that needs to give you approval is God Himself. 
But don't use it in an arrogant way. Well, I don't care what other people think as long as God thinks it. If you have that kind of attitude, God does not approve of that kind of attitude. And so you notice here, we're pulling in both directions. What he's saying there is, watch this. He says this, you adulterers and adulterers. Now, that's the reason why I use that. And he says here, you know what? You're married to Jesus. He says that in Romans 7. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. <coughs> Do you think that the scripture saith the vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us hateth the envy? Hey, Senior, you've got your, you've got a struggle going on in your heart. You're being pulled in two directions. Hey, we've got to get off this platform of being a double-souled individual and a double-minded person being single-minded in the Lord and saying, listen, you know, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. So how am I going to do that, Pastor Fong? You don't know how hard it is. I know it's hard. That's why he gave us verse 6. But he giveth more grace. Aren't you glad about that tonight? Oh, it's so hard. But he giveth more grace. He giveth more grace. He'll come to you alongside of you at nighttime when nobody's surrounding. You're feeling the pressure. You're being pulled in multiple directions. And you want to please somebody here, but you also know it's the right thing to please God. And you're struggling with this and struggling with that. And you're having so much success in this reign. And, and you're just saying, what do I do, God? And then you've got to reflect on verse 6. He says, he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Now, here's our reason why we don't want to move off the platform of being double-minded. It's pride. And so he tells us in verse 7, Now therefore submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from it. Realize there's a spiritual battle there. That's the cure for double-mindedness. That's the cure for it. And God speaks to us tonight as we look at Reuben. We want to go back to Genesis. We're done. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the ecstasy of dignity, the ecstasy of power. He says, Reuben, you're my firstborn. Do you understand all the hopes and the dreams I have for you? Do you understand what was in my mind the moment you came into the world? Do you understand what I want to accomplish in your life? Do you understand all that God wants? Do you understand the responsibilities? And by the way, now we can take that and transfer to where we're at when you were born into the family of God. When you were born into God's family, he's saying this, Alan Fong, do you understand all my hopes and dreams for you? Do you understand what I want to accomplish to your life? Do you understand what God wants to do? Do you understand how much I love you? Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Do you understand how much I love you? Do you know how much I want you to have excessive capacity so the power of God can flow through you? Do you understand how much I want you to experience my power? Do you understand that God wants to do more for you and more through you and not, not, through, not through your dreams? Do you understand it's not accomplishing your dreams for me, but letting me accomplish my dreams through you and getting my vision done through your life? Do you understand all that you want to do? He says, you are the ecstasy of my dignity. You are the ecstasy of my power. You're the beginning of my strength. But he says, Alan Fong, you're unstable as water. He says, because you haven't made a decision that you're in it all the way with God. And I say this tonight, we look from the perspective of the islands of a heavenly father who loves us. We are precious in his sight. We are people that he loves. We're children he wants to use. He, we, he, he sees us as being part of this family of God or this, this church membership, Heritage Baptist Church. He wants his church to be cohesive. He wants his church to be consecrated. He wants his church to be committed. 
He wants his church towed out for Jesus Christ. He wants his church in it all the way. Hey, you know what? We need to get off the sidelines and get off the middle of the ground, stop straddling the fence. And just like as Elijah stood up there, that lone prophet speaking to all the, the nation of Israel there on Mount Carmel, that entire nation going up there to hear this old prophet of God preach. And the prophets of Baal there. And looking tonight, he's outnumbered eight to one. And he stood out and preached with, with a loud voice. He said, how long haunt you between the two opinions? Maybe tonight we just need to say, Lord, I'm not going to have two opinions. I'm not going to have two different and divided interests. I'm not going to have great divisions of the heart. I'm just deciding tonight, I'm in all the way with Jesus Christ with him. And so tonight, as we close, we're vacillating. We're like the water waves are going back and forth. Instead of being unstable as water, let's be grounded in faith. Let's get deep with Jesus. Amen. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. And then tonight, are you saved? Are you going to heaven? Don't, don't, don't be divided about, should I get saved today? Get saved today. Get Jesus in your heart tonight. Your sins get washed away. Decide tonight, if you're not, you're not, if you're, you're, you're not saved, you're going to get saved tonight. You're going to call upon the Lord to save you from your sins. There should be a gnawing away your soul saying, man, there's somebody, what he's talking about tonight. I've got to get it in my soul. I've got to get it. Yeah, you need to get Jesus in because the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Get saved tonight. Get saved tonight. Brother and sister Christ, Jesus Christ is the best of the best. He never gives us leftovers. He never gives us junk. He always gives us the best of the best. That man tasted the water that was turned to wine. Tonight, we need to taste and see how good the Lord is. Father, tonight, I pray that you take the simple Bible study on the life of Reuben. Help us be reminded that as you looked at him, you said, let Reuben live and not die. There is hope. You still saw potential. Father, pray that you'd raise up a generation a congregation tonight, Christians on fire for God, sold out for Jesus Christ, ready and willing to do something great for God, willing to help us reach this area for Christ with the gospel of Jesus Christ here tonight. What a fearful thing that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Hence, the reason why we have some of the frustrations and difficulties we face. But, Lord, in the midst of that, thank you that, God, you love Reuben and you love us. And through that wonderful matchless love that you call upon us to draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to us. To cleanse our hands, to purify our hearts. Lord, I pray we come tonight seeking revival, purifying, cleansing, consecrating tonight. Help us tonight to get our hearts prepared and ready as church members for the Lord's table. And help some, Lord, who still are not decided that, that, that they're going to get in all the way. First, by being a church member, following the Lord's spiritual baptism tonight. Lord, I just pray this evening that in ensuing weeks we get in all the way and just decide this is it. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to be indecisive anymore. I'm on board with what God wants us to do. The Holy Spirit, have your way. You've spoken. 
Now you have your way, we pray. As we give the invitation, we ask, Lord, that, that each member, every person tonight, their heart will be tender, receptive to God's working. We commit this to you. We pray for souls to be saved. pray for Christians to be revived. Help us as we prepare for the Lord's table. We pray this in Jesus' name. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and make your way to the front if you need to. But I'm going to ask you to stand. Heads bowed and eyes closed. We're not going to sing. But if you need to do business with God, why don't you come tonight? Maybe you need grounding. You need to get in discipleship. Maybe you need grounding as a leader. I would say tonight, come make an appointment with me. You need to get grounding as a leader. You're not all that you think you are. You need to be a biblical leader that's grounded in your beliefs, grounded in your convictions, grounded about what's going on. We need to get grounded in these things. Let's get grounded tonight. Let's decide today. We're not going to be an ungainful people. We want to be an, we want to be a profitable people. Let's stand. Eyes, eyes closed. Heads bowed. If you need to come, you come tonight. Come as a family. Come in your marriage. Whatever it may be. Let's come this evening and face some time with God. Let's make, let's do business with God. Make sure we are stable in all our ways. Let's be stable in what we're doing. He said, unstable as water art thou. Thou shalt not excel. you're not sure you're saved tonight, maybe you could look up here at me and say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved, but I, I need to get saved. I, I realize tonight that I need, I need salvation. I want to be sure I'm going to heaven. You're not saved tonight. We want to help you tonight. You look up here. Well, I want to show you and help you with that tonight. Go through another stanza. Take your time. You need to come tonight. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. Let's him have His way. He said of Reuben, man, you, you're the ecstasy of my strength, the ecstasy of my dignity. Heavenly Father, this evening, we thank you for the study of your word and help us to grow in grace. Help us to grow, Lord, with love. Even the Bible says in Ephesians 3.17, we're to be grounded in the love of Jesus Christ, rooted and built up in him. Father, help us to get our roots very deep in Christ, our emotional roots, our spiritual roots. God, help us to be deep in the Lord, strengthen our faith. Lord, help us to learn from tonight that, Lord, that there is hope. There, there is, there, there, there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's a life of victory we can, that can be accomplished, but we must draw nigh to you. Draw us near to you as we go to the Lord's table now. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may-